working now? Okay, there you go. I uh, didn't turn it on. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, other forces don't want me to talk about hell right now. But we're going to talk about hell. And when I say that word, what comes to mind? You picture, like, fire, brimstone, deep, cavernous, like, caves, torture chambers, Maybe you're thinking, like, you'll see Sisyphus, like, still rolling that boulder up down the hill, rolling it back up, um, unimaginable things. Maybe Satan, right? Of course, he's red, right? He's got a goatee. He's got horns. He's got a pitchfork. He's sitting maybe on his throne. He's like the king of hell, right? And I want to ask you, where do you, got, where do you guys get these ideas from? Where are these images coming from? about hell. Maybe you visited the Sistine Chapel and seen Michelangelo's The Last Judgment. Maybe you've uh, read Dante's uh, Divine Comedy and learned and are informed by his depictions of the nine circles of hell. Perhaps it's a cartoon or a movie or a TV show. Here's a problem. We formulate our opinions. We have convictions. We are rejecting these ideas of hell. But where are we getting all these things? We're funneling all these ideas from Greek mythology, popular culture, placing them all in this word hell. And it is that fictional hell that we're rejecting. And also, it formulates our ideas about who God is based upon this fictional idea of hell. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. So I think it would be helpful for us, before we have these conclusions about what hell is, to look at what the scriptures say. Before we reject hell, let's go to the source. Jesus here in our passage says that hell is um, this place that is, um, what, what does it say? Eternal torment, a place of no return. He says in other places in uh, the Gospels um, that hell is a place of unquenchable fire. Worms don't die there, so there's eternal rotting. There's gnashing of teeth. A place like Gehenna, Gehenna was a place where they were constantly burning trash. Um, but I think I want you guys to realize is Jesus is trying to describe a place that we have never been to, like another place on earth. And so he's using imagery to help us understand, but they are not that. They're even far worse, okay? And what we're going to learn in this passage today, base level, I want you to learn that hell at its core is God letting us go to live a life apart from him for the rest of eternity. God is releasing us to live a life apart from him for the rest of eternity. That's hell. And maybe some of you guys are like, oh, is that it? It's not that bad. In fact, you might prefer it. I don't want to live with God and all that hallelujah stuff. But before we jump to those conclusions, let's first Dig a little bit deeper in this passage, and um, hopefully that will help us inform our conclusions better. Luke 16, 19-31. Um, let me pray real quick before we continue. 
Lord, God of creation, Heavenly Father, may the Spirit quicken our hearts that we may receive your word and become alive today. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so we have a parable here told by Jesus, and it begins by introducing us to this first character, the rich man. you got to remember, Jesus is a consummate storyteller. He doesn't mince words. Every single word that he's using, he's doing it intentionally. He doesn't waste words. He's not adding things just for the fluff of it. And he's also speaking to an audience that understands what he's talking about when he's using these words. He tells us this rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. I'm sure some of you guys might know that purple was the color for royalty. It was extremely expensive to extract from this type of mollusk. It just so happened um, that I was recommended by YouTube, the almighty YouTube, to watch this episode called Why Tyrian Purple is So Expensive. And uh, they interviewed this uh, Tunisian man, um, Mohammed Ghassan Noya, and he figured out how to extract this purple from the muric snail gland, and he says it takes 45 kilograms, 100 pounds, of snails to culminate into a single gram of this Tunisian uh, Tyrian purple. We, uh, they say a gram today costs about $2,700 plus more expensive than gold. In fact, there's uh, Roman documents from the late 3rd century that sets the price of this purple dye to be equal to one pound of purple dye is equal to three pounds of gold. So he made clothes out of a material that's more than gold. If he had made a full decked out uh, clothes in gold, this is worth even more than that. The fine linen kind of gets lost in translation. It's that word busos which today we call bisis, which no one even knows what that means right now, until I tell you it's what's used to make known uh, sea silk. And bisis is these uh, filaments from this clam, this mollusk, that allows it to attach to the sea floor. So they're taking these clams, these little filaments, and making linen out of this. This guy is not just rich. He is Filthy rich. Everyone in that audience would have understood. This guy is rich. This guy is LV rich. Christian Dior rich. Not that normal $1,000 Dior. This is like hot couture Dior, right? This is a red carpet exclusive to the upper echelons of society rich, all right? And he is, he goes on to say, he's feasting sumptuously every single day. Every day he is living the lavish, luxurious, good High life. Jesus transitions, and in his transition, he tells us a little bit more about the rich man as well as the next character. He says, at his gate. Whose gate? The rich man's gate. He owns a property big enough to even require a gate around it. He has a state, and at this gate is laid this poor man. And right there, we have that juxtaposition, rich of rich beyond rich. And this poor man, not just poor, but to the bottom of the bottom poor. He was laid. That verb is in the middle passive form. He didn't lay himself there. Someone had laid him. He is the recipient of someone's action, of this action of being laid. He can't walk. He's lame. He's crippled. Someone had to lay him, not in his own home, because maybe he doesn't have a home, but at the gate of this rich man in the hopes, as it says, that he might be able to even eat the crumbs that fall off this sumptuous feast. 
And as Jesus paints this picture, here is the, like, gotcha moment. He names this poor man Lazarus. It's like, Lazarus? Are you serious? You're going to call this poor man Lazarus? That's ridiculous. What a joke. I want to pause real quick because maybe some of you guys are not quite grasping how ridiculous this is. We need to kind of go a little bit out, and we'll go to the wider context a little bit to chapter 15. And we read in chapter 15, verse 1 to 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so he's in a crowd with tax collectors, with sinners, with Pharisees, with scribes. And these Pharisees obviously have it in for this Jesus character, okay? And so then he goes into talking about the parable, the the trio of parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, or the prodigal son. Then he goes into the parable of the dishonest manager, and then he takes a little pause, before it goes into our parable, and it says this in chapter 16, 14, the Pharisees, they're still around, he's still talking to them, who were lovers of money, hint, hint, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. What a joke. This guy talking to us as if he knows anything, anything about money, and then is where Jesus goes into this parable, knowing their hearts, knowing that they're ridiculing him, and he just digs right into their heart. Rich man, rich, everyone wants that lifestyle. Poor man, Lazarus. Why is Lazarus such a dig? Because it's the Hellenized version of the name Eleazar, Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped. This poor man is the one whom God has helped. No, thank you very much. If that's what life looks like to someone who God has helped, I don't want any part of that, God. None of that. I want the riches now. I want to eat sumptuously now. That is how God can help me. This other low life, poor, crippled, sores all over his body, worse than even dogs. That is who God has helped. No, thank you. I'd rather live a life without God than that God. Now, Jesus goes right into it, the afterlife. The poor man died, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, right away, because he's by Abraham's side, we understand that where he is. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. God himself identifies himself to other people as I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of your father, Abraham. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Multiple times throughout the Old Testament, God tells people, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham truly is with God in heaven. And it is with this poor man that Abraham is, or put the other way, it is with Abraham that this poor man is by Abraham's side, or that word is by his bosom. There is this closeness, this intimacy that this poor man enjoys in heaven. Interesting of note, and we'll come back to it a little bit later, 
is that no other parable that Jesus mentions that or tells does he ever name the characters. Only in this one parable, of all the parables that Jesus ever told, this is the only parable where we actually have names for the characters, and the two names of the characters are Lazarus and Abraham. Rich man. He also died. He was buried, it says, which was absent for the poor man. He was rich enough to have a proper burial. And he finds himself in Hades, as it says. Now, he needs to use the vernacular, the vocabulary that people are comfortable with, that, that they understand. But he's not drawing in Greek-Roman mythology about what Hades is. But he needs to connect with people. Right? And so he's using this word, but he brings his own definition. He uses the word just as a place where uh, people go after they die. But as we read through this parable, we'll see that he has a quite different concept than what we've learned about in Greek mythology. It mentions that he is, in, he is being tormented. He is in Hades being in torment. This is a noun. This is a state of being. I think a lot of times when we think about hell, we're thinking God actively torturing. <laughs> I'm great. You're nothing. I'm going to just torture you because I'm mean. No, he is in a state of being tormented, not from outside, but within. Within his own mind, he is in the state of being tormented. And he lifts up his eyes, sees Abraham, sees Lazarus, and he says, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. Cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so we do have these images of flame, images of anguish, parched lips. But really, what is going on? We notice a few things here that first... The rich man does not ask to leave. Wouldn't you think that would be the first thing? I'm in hell. Can you get me out of here? That would be the first thing. No, he doesn't ask to go out of hell. Second, he actually knows the name of Lazarus. That poor man crippled by his gates. You would think, oh, I didn't know he was there. I, why should I help him? Was he even there? I didn't even know. He actually knows his name. Send Lazarus. Third, he's still considering life even in the afterlife, according to the social hierarchy that he lived by. He is at the top. He's rich. He's prosperous. He gets to order everybody around. He is the Lord. Everyone serves him, including Father Abraham. He, he doesn't, so Lazarus is way down the totem pole. He doesn't even dare talk to such a low life as Lazarus. He talks to Abraham, his father, but even though he calls him father, he's ordering him to order the servant below him to come um, comfort himself. He is oblivious to the full ramifications of what's going on. And Abraham, his response is child, techno, son. It is not what we imagine these other people on TikTok. Uh, these sound bites, these hot takes, a God of love wouldn't have hell. It's a torture chamber. What kind of God would love torturing other people? No, child. And he's calling him to remember who he really is as a child of God. 
Remember, he says, that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner his. And then it's a switch. And besides, there's this great chasm. So we know that it's a fixed situation. It is impossible to traverse. We have those in hell and those in heaven. Now, naturally the question arises, is Abraham saying that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven? Hold on to that. We'll come back, all right? But it kind of seems to say that. The rich man now begs, and he calls Abraham father again. I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Again, still not addressing Lazarus. He says, you, father, send him, right? Still ordering people to go about his business according to his rules, according to his commands. And he said, and notice the undertone here. He's basically saying, can you warn them, please? Because I didn't get the same chance. I got the short end of the stick here. You didn't warn me enough. That's why I'm here. But you know what? If you send Lazarus, I'm sure my five brothers will not end up here, right? He's not owning up to any responsibility of any type of sin of why he is where he is. Abraham's response, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Scriptures are enough. You had the scriptures. If you're not going to bother reading the scriptures, if you're not going to bother believing this reality that the scriptures portray, then it's senseless. Nothing else matters. If you want information, if you want a warning, if you want mercy, if you want grace, guess what? It's all right here in the scriptures. It is sufficient. So I pause and challenge you guys. How many of us are too busy to spend time with the word of God? How many of us know even that this is the word of God? And yet it sits there at a bed table. We have all sorts of excuses. I'm too young. I don't understand any of this stuff. I'm too old. My brain doesn't work like it used to when I was young. I'm single. You know how hard it is to live on your own? I'm married. You know, I got, I got a marriage to take care of. I got to protect. I got to provide. I got children. Oh, my goodness. You know how hard it is? You just lose time. These babies, the uh, children, you got uh, this huge responsibility, all these other things. I got work, the commute. I'm just drained. By the time I come home, I just need to unwind. I have problems just focusing. I'm not really a visual learner. I'm not good at reading. I'm not good at listening. The boring just plain just sucks. It's boring. It makes me fall asleep. The list goes on and on. You can really come up with any excuse you want end of the day, what do you truly believe? What does your life show? Do you believe this is the word of life? Do you believe this is the word of God? And it is your identity. It is your sustenance. 
without it, you feel parched, you feel hungry, you feel starved. Jesus is saying, do you know the difference between Lazarus and the rich man? One listened to the word of God. The other listened to his own word. One took the scripture seriously. The other took the philosophies of the world seriously. One lived in submission to God. And the other lived for others to serve him. One lived according to the reality of heaven and the other the reality of hell, the absence of God. Let's go back. One last plea. The rich man. No, Father. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. No, no, no. You don't get to tell me the rules of the game. No, 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 no. Scriptures, come on, come on. Can you please send this Lazarus back? I know what will work. Who are you to tell me how life is supposed to be? Who are you to tell me how I can enjoy my life? No, 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 no. Can you please send Lazarus over? And if they, my brothers, see someone rise from the dead, they will repent. So beside the audacity to figure out, the, you know, change the rules of the game, He actually knows what's supposed to happen. He knows he's supposed to repent, and yet he doesn't do it. He knows he's supposed to repent, and yet he doesn't repent. He knows. He's familiar with the scripture. Yet he's still oblivious. He's still living his own personal hell. And Abraham, listen, I don't know how else I can make it any more clear. The scriptures, they have the Moses and the prophets. Even if someone were to raise from the dead, they will not come to eternal life. So we tease out some. Hopefully we are now understanding like the audience of understanding. Hopefully maybe some of us are offended like the Pharisees who have offended or maybe some of us are like the tax collector and sinners are like hopeful. And let's try to kind of fit all the pictures together because even then um, maybe they didn't quite get it. You see, um, let's go back to uh, the table where I kind of tabled uh, the question about do rich people go to hell? Poor people go to heaven. I think if we look, just even within this context, we can rule that out pretty much right away. Why? Because Abraham. He names Abraham. Who is Abraham? Father of nations. God actually prospers Abraham. God himself makes him rich. He was rich. He was prosperous. He had many sons. Father Abraham had many sons, right? He was rich. He was prosperous. He had a great life. And yet we see him in heaven. And so we cannot simplify this to some banal, like, ordinary, oh, you know, rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. That's too simple. Even if we look at other parts of Scripture, even in Acts, we have um, Lydia, who's a seller of purple, right? Rich. Obviously, Paul commends her for her great faith. So let's go back to this idea of the names. Why in this parable would he name the two characters? No other parable has that 
Lazarus, he who God helps, Abraham, the father of all nations. And without the use of PowerPoint slides, Jesus has to use these contextual clues as he speaks to his people for him to highlight certain things. And glaring out is the namelessness of the rich man. When you name two characters and there's three characters and the third character has no name, that's highlighted. That should stand out. The rich man's identity is tied up in him being rich. That's who he is. It's clear from his responses he had a low regard for scripture. He lived a life according to his rules, according to what he said was the life, according to what he wanted to do for all of eternity. I'm sure if he, if we interviewed him, is like, if you could live for eternity, would you live like this? He would say, yes. I love my life. This is the way I want to live for the rest of eternity without God as Lord of my life, but as me sitting on the throne of my life, dictating the rules. He chose to believe a world where he was God. And hell is just the life you are living in sin without God allowed to continue for eternity. One of my favorite books, The Great Divorce, I've read it multiple, multiple times. If you want to know someone who's able to write well, C.S. Lewis, you might know him for the Chronicles of Narnia. And he depicts heaven and hell in such a way that I never heard before. And it, it really illumines kind of uh, what's going on here. He says in The Great Divorce, hell is a state of mind. He never said a true word, and every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly, for all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. This world is restrained by common grace. Without God's common grace, it will be complete chaos, anarchy, sinfulness. It will truly be a living hell. But in his great patience and love, he is restraining us from it. And he's given each and every one of us here to live heaven, live with him as Lord over our lives now. Now, here's the thing. C.S. Lewis, he again says in another uh, book, The Problem of Pain. And this is the question for all those that don't want to believe in hell. This is it. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He's done so. He did it on Calvary. To forgive them, they don't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Don't you see the problem isn't that God is this tyrant enjoying this torture chamber as he's like, ha, 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 watch them burn to death. No, the problem is us. The problem is we want to live according to our own way. We want to live according to our own rules that we define. We want to live 
as Lord over our own lives with others serving us, including God. We will order God, let me have this. If I get this, if I have success, only then will I read the Bible. Only then will I come to faith. If you come back even from the dead, I hear, I was a youth group pastor for a long time. I always heard, if I just saw Jesus rise from the dead, if I lived right then and there, I would believe. But I can't because that's 2,000 years ago. I can't believe that. Do you see it now? What's going on here? Do you see it? Do you see Jesus? He's telling this story. But remember, I set the context. He's speaking to Pharisees. And he's speaking to Pharisees. He has placed the Pharisees in the story. The rich ruler is the Pharisee. Are the Pharisees. How do you, I don't know. The rich ruler, singular, is the Pharisees, right? Each and every one of them is the Pharisee. Of all the people, they're the ones that should have known that Moses and the prophets was enough. They were supposed to study it. They were supposed to know it. They were supposed to know it inside and out. They're reciting it. They're using it. And yet they did not see Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus was right in front of them, talking to them, speaking to them, and they despised him. They ridiculed him. They killed him on the cross. And even Jesus prophecies that even if I were to die and rise from the dead, even then you wouldn't believe. And it's true. They did not believe even after the resurrection, even after seeing it with their very own eyes. Jesus is calling them out. As he's right there, and guess what? He is stretching through time and calling you out. We are the rich ruler. You are the rich ruler. You're living by your own rules. You're living as the Lord of your own lives. Treating God as some servant to do your bidding. And that means what? That Lazarus is Jesus. He's right there. He is the suffering servant. And it was always in Moses and the prophets. You open to Isaiah 52, 53. It speaks of the suffering servant. Behold, my servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see how much God loves you and I? The reason why we have to talk about hell because then we won't understand the created, we won't understand heaven. We are living in our own created realities of our own minds, and we have to let that go. We have to understand that is hell in order to live the true reality that God has created for all of us. The reality that he, we are his children and that he loves you. Technon, child. We are the oblivious ones. We are still living as if this is it. This is everything. We're putting all of our stock right here in these 70, 80 years. But God, in his great love, displayed the greatest act of love by sending his one and only son to you, the son who 
pierced through heaven the impossible chasm between God and man, and he traversed that to meet you. And he did not, though he was God, consider deity something to be grasped. When we who are man-creature try to grasp deity, try to be gods ourselves, God sends us the suffering servant. We could not say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But Christ says that on our behalf. Not my will, but yours be done. And he even descended into hell to win victory over sin and death for us. He is our champion and now is resurrected, exalted in heaven. So therefore, everyone in Christ is now able to enjoy the bosom of our Father and intimacy that you can never know that reality unless you are in Christ. And you can hear his word loudly and clearly. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Until you understand that God rescued from hell, how can you ever understand the depths that he went to reach out of there to get you next to him? How can you ever know the price he paid? Without a hell, his love is cheap. It's free. It means nothing. But because there's a hell, you understand the infinite love he has for you. So I call you technon, child, son, daughter. Remember who you are as a child of God. Turn no longer. Run away no longer. Turn to him and feel his embrace in Christ. 